0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions.
1: Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
0: Welcome back, cardio
2: nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds.
3: Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. every little bit goes a long way we're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds we are establishing the Cardionerds academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows please see the link in the episode description to submit an application and now without further ado let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardio nerds colleagues We are here for another Cardio Nerd's Case Report Series Recruitment Edition with some of my good friends from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. We have Pranothi, we have Asanth, and we have Rick, and they are going to go introduce themselves and let you know who they are.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Rick McHale. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow at Hopkins. I completed medical school at Rutgers Robert Johnson in New Jersey, after which I completed an internal medicine residency training in the Oster program at Hopkins. Stay on for cardiology and hope to pursue electrophysiology in the future. I sat at work. Most of my free time nowadays is spent with my daughter, who is eight months old exactly today. She loves going to the park, which is right across the street from where we live, and she loves watching dogs play in that park.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Vasant Kumar. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Hopkins. I went to medical school at Vanderbilt and then moved to Baltimore for a residency at Hopkins and stayed on for fellowship. I'm hoping to stay in general cardiology once I finish my training, and I'm a huge basketball fan, so very happy that the NBA playoffs are back.
5: Hi everyone, I'm Pranoti math I went to med school at Harvard Medical School, went back home to Seattle at University of Washington residency programs, and came out to Hopkins for a cardiology fellowship. I'm currently a third year, and I'll stay here for structural and interventional cardiology. I really enjoy hosting people, making food, and of course that's tough these days, so I rely on remote video conferencing with a lot of my friends across the country.
2: Oh my gosh. Rick, Vasant, Pernothi, I'm so excited to finally have you all on the show. If I had enough time to tell everyone how much I've enjoyed our friendships, we wouldn't have time to talk about the case. But I do want to say how dismayed I am, Pranothi, that I've never been hosted and fed, given that those are your hobbies. But we'll save that for another time. And Rick, I'd forgotten that you have a kid. What's it been like being a cardiology fellow and raising an infant? From my own personal experience, having a kid and being a fellow is an amazing thing, but it can be challenging. What's that been like, man?
0: Absolutely. It's been incredibly busy, but incredibly rewarding. She is now just standing up and grabbing things everywhere. So we're busy putting gates up and child-proving the cabinets, but it's been a lot of fun. Every day we see new things that she's learned and it's great to see that.
2: That's awesome, man. I've lived some of my favorite years, five years in Baltimore, and I definitely have a lot of favorite spots that I used to take my son out to, but I'd love to have you guys set the scene for our visit with the Johns Hopkins Fellowship Program before we get into a great case.
0: Absolutely. And I'll preface this by saying that there's just a lot of places I love about Baltimore. My wife and I, we live in Canton. We love taking walks by the water in Fells Point. I guarantee that Patango Gelato in Fells rivals any gelato place in the country. So if you guys are game, let's get some gelato and hang out by the harbor there and discuss a case. In a HIPAA compliant manner, of course, that's said,
2: <laughs> I couldn't be happier because I miss Patango so much. They have great gelato, but I'll also say that they have some of the best breakfast sandwiches I've ever had. So. A lot of things to love about sitting outside on the Patango's outdoor patio right in front of the waterfront. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Let's do our favorite things while we hang out with friends. let talk some cardiology.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited to share this case with you all. Vasant and I consulted on this patient last year, and I learned a tremendous amount from caring for the patient. And if okay with you guys, before we actually get into the case, I want to preface it by sharing an incredibly relevant piece of philosophy. So in the 6th century BC, Plato presented his allegory of the cave in his work called The Republic. In this allegory, he depicts a group of prisoners who live chained side by side to a cave wall all of their lives. They can only see the wall in front of them, and like a modern projector, a fire-lit lantern casts shadows of objects on the wall in front of them. The prisoners give names to these shadows, personify them. To them, they are reality. One of the prisoners one day breaks free and manages to get outside of the cave and discovers the true reality, a higher understanding, and sees the sun and other people. He rushes back inside, describes his alternate reality to the prisoners, and the prisoners think he's absolutely crazy. They're in majority, and to them, the actual reality is the shadows. That's what they've grown up with. This is what they know. Who is this crazy, hallucinating person to tell them otherwise? So I think this allegory applies well to medicine, where we are frequently siloed in the cave of our own specialties, and it's really important to consider alternate perspectives and even treatment modalities.
2: on. that was a beautiful parallel. In the beginning of your description, I was getting a little bit uncomfortable because I thought you were describing your fellowship experience, but you brought it back into this beautiful narrative about the multidisciplinary approach. So that worked out really well. I was like, in a dark cave, chained together. No, but this is beautiful.
0: Thank you for adding philosophy to our cardi nerds' lives. Great. All right. So I guess with this, we'll go ahead and get started. So the patient is a 40-year-old with longstanding type 1 diabetes. Past renal and pancreatic transplant complicated by renal graft failure requiring intermittent hemodialysis. He has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, peripheral vascular disease, status post-right BKA, with multiple past failed fistulas, and HD access points. He's from Pennsylvania and was referred to Hopkins by his local physicians for an elective left-groin AV loop graft placement. His family history is notable for diabetes, otherwise no early history of MI or cardiac arrhythmias. Social history, single, never smoker, no history of illicit drug use, not currently working due to his comorbidities, but otherwise generally active at baseline. No known allergies. In terms of meds, he's on aspirin daily, high intensity statin, nifetipine, clonidine, warfarin, which was held for this procedure, dyrbopoietin, and gabapentin. In terms of his pre-procedure vitals, he was afebrile, blood pressures were 120s to 140s over 80s, heart rate was in the 70s, and he was saturating low on air. The documented pre-procedure exam noted that he had evidence of prior failed HD access sites, including ligated fistulas, but otherwise the exam was within normal limits, and he was deemed suitable to proceed with the graft placement.
3: So it sounds like at this point, everything's routine, right? There's nothing that's really alarming. You obviously didn't evaluate him for a quote-unquote clearance or give the go-ahead, but everything would have been copacetic from your perspective. Is that right? Oh,
2: Dan, clearance. Did I say clearance? You said clearance. I said quote-unquote. I said quote-unquote. Oh, no. oh, you know, Kittleson's rules. There's no clearance, man. I oh. had a little inside just now. Preoperative risk stratification. Sounds much better. <laughs> quote-unquote. All right. Sorry. I, I I had to.
0: Yeah. Carry on. So yeah, he was preoperative stratified, Dan, and he was deemed suitable to undergo this procedure. And he actually walked into the hospital. This is a routine procedure, and he was going to stay overnight and be discharged.
3: All right, that makes sense. So what happened next? Why were we
0: involved? Yes, he proceeds with the procedure, and I actually have the anesthesia flow sheet here pulled up in front of me. And what we see that overall, he's in the room for about two and a half hours. The beginning of the case goes well. Blood pressures are stable with MAPs in the 120s range initially, then around 100 with anesthesia. As part of the procedure, he receives 4,000 units of systemic heparin, and then the loop graft is placed without issue. And per protocol, the heparin is reversed with protamine, and after which he has an acute drop in his MAPs from around 100 to low 40s. He's rapidly administered ephedrine, phenylephrine, and fluids, after which his MAPs stabilize in the low 100s. So in the PECU after he was stabilized hemodynamically, he was extubated. And unfortunately, he was, again, hypotensive. Blood pressures were in the 70s or the 40s. It's
2: quite a profound course. And so far, it sounds like a typical portamine reaction. And I would wonder if this patient has a history of NPH insulin use, prior vasectomy, and or a fish allergy, because those are all risk factors for portamine, as we learned in a prior episode. You're already showing me the light outside of our cave because I think being able to pull up the anesthesia flow sheet and actually correlate the timings of vital signs and drug administration is so useful. And we can actually include this in our show notes below.
0: Absolutely. A troublesome course here. So this nuance of chest pain and hypotension prompted an admission to the sicku. In the ICU, he was administered additional fluids. However, his hypertension persisted, and this was treated with additional pushes of phenylephrine, and subsequently, he was started on a norepinephrine drip. He developed progressive hypoxia and altered mental status and required intubation. He was also started on a peric heparin drip for possible pulmonary embolism. His labs and EKG were obtained, and cardiology was consulted, given the fact that he had chest pain pre-intubation and now this persistent hypotension. So on our evaluation at this point, he was intubated, sedated, he had coarse mechanically ventilated breath sounds, cardiac exam notable for regular rhythm, tachycardia, otherwise normal S1-S2, without S3-S4, he had a 3 out of 6 systolic murmur at the left lower sternum border, consistent with TR. His extremities were warm.
3: Rick, before we get to labs, I've gotten consulted a couple times with patients that have a post-op course that's not necessarily predicted and the patient has hypotension. As you were walking to evaluate this patient, what was going through your mind as you were approaching the patient? Do you have some sort of differential or framework of how you're going to assess this
0: patient? Yeah. And being a cardiology consultant, certainly the cardiac issues come to mind first, whether or not he had new onset heart failure, whether there was an arrhythmia ongoing, he has a history of atrial fibrillation, whether or not he had any coronary events going on, he has a history of multiple coronary risk factors. And aside from the cardiac issues, of course, we're worried, is this a surgical issue? Do you have some other surgical complication or anesthetic complication? So multiple things that we were actively thinking about when on route to evaluating the patient.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like globally you're thinking about three main categories. Is this a pre-existing structural problem that was brought out by a new stressor, like a patient with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy who lost a preload and now is obstructing? Or is this a response to an itrogenic stimulus, like a protamine reaction? Or a surgical complication with bleeding? Or is this a new acute pathology, like a new PE or a new coronary event? It sounds like the three main categories that we can start pursuing the differential diagnosis.
0: Absolutely. And so moving forward here, at this point we did have some labs that came back and the white count was seven, hemoglobin was around nine, which is around his baseline, platelet's one sixty-four. His CMP showed mildly elevated potassium of 5.2, BUN and creatinine were consistent with the on IHT thirty over four point four. He had normal glucose, uh, newly elevated AST at 150, and ALT 68, with a total bilirubin at that point at 1.2. His coags with APTT 35, normal PT, INR 1.4. His initial troponin was 0.83 with the subsequent uptrend, and antiprobium P was 20,000, and lactate 5.3.
5: So it sounds like this is a young man with type 1 diabetes and long-standing complications including dialysis dependence, multiple failed grafts, who has an atrial fibrillation history but otherwise no known cardiac history, who is now intraoperatively given heparin and then protamine and suddenly decompensates with hypotension. And labs are showing us that he may be developing shock but otherwise we don't have too much more information at this point.
0: Yeah, I think those are the big things that we have some evidence that he was progressing into shock physiology with this lactic acidosis and possibly even ischemic hepatitis, newly elevated AST and ALT. And then now the task was to determine what the etiology of the shock was.
5: Yeah, to add to that, it looks like there could be a cardiogenic component with elevated JVP and new or worsening severe TR on exam.
3: That's really great. You could simplify us to a vascular tone issue, a vascular volume issue, or a cardiac component. And hearing the story, it sounds like there were two periods of hypotension. There was that first period where he had just received the protamine. And then later on, even though he was quickly resuscitated with phenylephrine and ephedrine intraop to reverse that acute process, there was this second hit of hypotension that persisted later. And so we're going to be trying to tease out what's going on so that we could reverse the underlying etiology, but definitely getting a picture that A, this patient remains in a hypoperfused state. This probably wasn't a transient process. And B, there's a cardiac component that's involved. So even if we end up invoking a reaction to medicine, that would not
2: fully explain this picture at all. Yeah, and I'll say that this is a great example of why the life of a cardiology consultant can be very challenging, right? Because this is not a situation where the patient comes in with subacute progressive dyspnea and you have so much time to really tease out the history and get into the nuances of the physical exam and go to the medical history and risk factors, then get all the labs and pour over all the lab data. You don't have that much time. This patient is acutely ill and deteriorating in front of you. And so that initial instinct that Rick had to develop an acute differential diagnosis is so important because now you need to focus on the very quick stepwise diagnostics at the bedside that are going to help you understand that better. So the physical exam is really useful, the EKG, the POCUS, bedside ultrasound, all of these things are going to be prioritized over the typical standard approach that we have for a patient who's less ill.
4: So I think the protamine question is quite interesting, especially given the temporal correlation with protamine-administered intra-op and the patient subsequently becoming hypotensive. We see protamine in medical centers in a variety of settings. In drop, as in this patient, we use it in the ICUs. We use it pre-procedure for patients as well. So it's a medication that we're quite used to. Yet, when we think about side effects from protamine, I think it's actually quite rare. So as we know, protamine does bind heparin, to form a stable ion pair. And interestingly, protamine is also used in several insulin formulations. So a lot of our patients coming in on insulin have been exposed to protamine in the past. There's actually not a lot of data in the literature talking about protamine and hemodynamic compromise, but there are three main types of hemodynamic effects that have been described. Type 1 is hypotension from protamine secondary to histamine release. Type 2 is a true anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid reaction that can just cause profound vasoplegia that can be quite difficult to treat. And type three, at least from a cardiac standpoint, is a reaction that causes acute pulmonary hypertension and subsequent RV dysfunction. And systemic hypotension then occurs through intraventricular dependence and underfilling of the left ventricle. Possible risk factors include underlying pulmonary hypertension and prior protamine exposure, i.e., patients who have had that insulin exposure in the past, for example. It's not really clear what causes this type three reaction, but there was this landmark study done by Morrill and colleagues in 1987 published in the journal anesthesiology they looked at in a prospective manner 48 patients undergoing cardiac surgery to identify those who may have this type 3 reaction or this acute pulmonary hypertension that occurs it's obviously small sample size with only 48 patients but in that series only 3 patients had this type 3 effect and when looking at serum biomarkers they found that in these patients there was upregulation of complement activity thromboxane release and a minor upregulation in histamine therefore suggesting that perhaps this histamine release is not really the driver here. It's more of complement activation and thromboxin release. Again, I think more studies need to be done in order to figure out what really causes this acute pulmonary hypertension. But Rick, I would be interested in seeing or hearing about what a bedside echo or a formal echo would look like. Did this patient truly have RV dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension to see if this type 3 reaction occurred here?
0: Thanks so much, Hassan. That's incredibly useful. So it sounds like it may be a primary pulmonary vasoconstrictive process causing RV failure after a systemic hypotension due to ventricular interdependence. The echo has been ordered, and while we wait for that, we do have an EKG and chest x-ray that have been completed. The EKG shows sinus tachycardia at a rate of 110 beats per minute, right bundle branch block, and no other ischemic changes. Here, I was looking for signs of RV dysfunction and strain from either PE or pulmonary vasoconstriction, as we just talked about. So things I was looking for is one, the most common being sinus tachycardia, which this patient had. S1Q3T3 pattern, which is not sensitive or specific, but this patient did not have evidence of that. A right bundle branch block, which was baseline for this patient. Right axis deviation, which again was baseline, and atrial arrhythmias. And at this point, he was not in atrial fibrillation. We, otherwise on x-ray, see evidence of pulmonary vascular congestion and bi or atelectasis and a generous-sized heart. We have an echo that should be ready. And Pernothi, I think you were just on your echo rotation recently. Would you mind helping us out with the echo read and letting us know what it shows?
5: Yes, definitely, Rick. So given the way that it's framed, I'm looking for signs of any kind of protamine reaction, but in addition, trying to fit the echo into the context of elevated JVP shock and perhaps a murmur of some kind that could be TR. So just thinking about the echo broadly and thinking about RV function, it's a combination of preload, contractility, afterload, and ventricular interdependence. Most cases of RV failure follow cardiac or pulmonary diseases or a combination, and in this case, that may influence each of the four components that I mentioned. So I'm also looking to see how these impact the right ventricle and also how they can point us toward the etiology of RV dysfunction. So I'm looking for abnormal preload by looking for volume status. And of course, the best approach is clinical, but from an echo perspective, we can look at inferior vena cava size and collapsibility to look at a surrogate of right atrial pressure. And in this case, his IVC is large and incollapsible, and that suggests a high right atrial pressure. We can look for right atrial dilation as well as RV dilation, so dilation of the right ventricle. It's also important to consider the right ventricle to left ventricle ratio of size because even though the right ventricular dimensions may be within normal, it's abnormal for the right ventricle to be more than around two-thirds of the LV size. Another way to look for increased right-sided volume is simply to look for septal bowing of the intraventricular septum in diastole. And by this, is there a D-shaped septum present in diastole in that parasternal short axis view? And in this patient, we see all those things. So ultimately, this together with the clinical exam suggests that there is certainly a preload issue present. The next thing I want to look for is afterload on the RV. Whether it's a large pulmonary embolism, LV backward failure, pulmonary vasoconstriction, or other pulmonary disease, all of these can cause increased pressures within the RV. So quick increases in afterload are actually really poorly tolerated by the right ventricle, and they lead to dilation of the right ventricle to preserve stroke volume. So even a dilated right ventricle could be a reflection of an immediate increase in afterload, and it may or may not be chronic. If we're looking back on that interventricular septum, then we can notice RB pressure overload when we see whether the interventricular septum is also compressed during systole, And this is one sign of RV pressure overload. We can look at whether the LV is functional or dysfunctional to see whether there is pulmonary venous hypertension. And that's not necessarily the case in this echo. When we distinguish primary pulmonary arterial etiologies versus pulmonary venous etiologies, we can actually look at the RV outflow tract velocity to see whether there is a mid-systolic notch to suggest primary RV dysfunction and elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. And that's something that's seen in pulmonary venous hypertension. And then one of the most fundamental ways to measure RV pressures using echo is to use the simplified Bernoulli equation which states that the pressure in one area is a function of the pressure in another area and the flow between them. So we can take our right atrial pressure estimate of 15 and add to that the gradient of blood flowing through the tricuspid valve. And that gives us a right ventricular systolic pressure of 63 millimeters of mercury, particularly in the absence of any stenosis of other valves. And that is pulmonary hypertension. So third, we would like to look for ventricular interdependence. And a well-functioning LV usually actually contributes 20 to 40% of the RV stroke volume. So what happens when you have severe RV dysfunction is that the size of the RV is constrained by the pericardium and the septum shifts toward the LV in systole and diastole. And that leads to reduced LV filling and then results in reduced stroke volume and overall cardiac output despite a preserved or hyperdynamic left ventricular ejection fraction. So in advanced stages, RV contraction occurs when the LV is already in its diastolic phase, and because of that, the pulmonic valve will close even though the RV is still contracting, and that further leads to increased RV pressures and reduced forward flow. So especially because this is an ESRD patient, I would also want to look for any kind of pericardial disease that could be constraining the RV. And finally, we're looking at RV contractility itself. Due to its morphology, the RV generally tolerates volume overload better, and RV contractility remains preserved for a longer period of time, particularly in chronic pressure overload states. In this case, we grossly see that the RV looks like it's not contracting appropriately. And when we quantify this, we can look at a few things. Tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion or TAPSE, and that gives us the basal free wall tissue excursion and measures the function of the longitudinal muscles. So here the value is 1.0 centimeters, which is reduced. And we can also look at the tissue Doppler velocity of that right ventricular base. And that value of S prime is 4.5 centimeters per second, which is reduced as well. And we can also calculate the fractional area change between systole and diastole. And this is well below the normal cutoff of 35%. So in summary, it seems that this is someone who has either acute or chronic. It's difficult to tell problems with increased preload within the RV, elevated afterload as evidenced by elevated pressures within the RV, evidence of ventricular interdependence that's leading to reduced LV stroke volume, and then reduced contractility of the RV.
2: Wow. Parnothi, I'm basically speechless. This was such a next-level comprehensive evaluation that's hypothesis-driven for this particular patient who's so incredibly sick right now. And I think as cardiologists, we all need to have a great deal of appreciation for the various imaging modalities. This background that you have on ECHO is going to make you such a tremendous structural interventional cardiologist in particular. So this is definitely something I will aspire to. But I do have a question. How does the fact that the patient is intubated with positive pressure ventilation affect your takeaways from the IVC for volume assessment?
5: That is a great question. And I think that IVC reliability for estimating atrial pressure is certainly difficult. It's much lower in mechanically ventilated patients because we know that there's elevated right atrial pressure from the positive pressure itself. So I think that certainly reduces our sensitivity from an echocardiographic perspective. And again, the clinical exam is the best way to evaluate. Awesome. Thanks.
3: Yeah, Bruno, that is fantastic. And I'm not really sure if you need to do any more studying for echo boards. It sounds like you're quite there already. And (laughs) it was just a delight to hear you approach the right ventricle that way. I have two points to make. One is you approach the RV with the very characteristic four points that a lot of us approach the LV with. The preload, afterload, contractility, and then valve competence. And I love that. And actually, that's how I approach a case like this as well. But I just start with the LV, which you, again, probably just, it's intuitive to you. But, you know, when somebody is systemically hypotensive, that gets me very fixated on what is the LV doing? And this rubric really is very helpful in not missing anything. And for this particular patient, they're hypotensive. Could it be a contractility issue? Could it be a valve that's totally incompetent, like mitral regurgitation? Or is the afterload too high? And finally, the preload. And obviously, this echo really speaks to the fact that it is a preload issue. And when the left ventricle preload is just so low, it cannot eject enough. And that's basically what ends up happening. And basically, when I have that question, then I go back to the RV and I start thinking about it. Okay, So something is causing the RV to not deliver enough volume to the LV so that the LV can contract and actually get enough blood flow to the systemic circulation to get us a blood pressure that we really need. And so then I would also like kind of tip into the way you approach the RV in such a nice way. It's really just a great way of approaching shock, especially when you want to separate out the biventricular components to shock. So I really appreciate that. And then the other thing that we had mentioned, actually, we had an incredible episode back when we were doing our COVID series with the ICU. We had Sam Brusca and Dave Perfaro, who just eloquently talked about the hemodynamics of the right ventricle versus the left ventricle in terms of ventilation and how switching somebody from negative ventilation, which is what we normally do on our own, to positive pressure ventilation has impacts on the LV and on the RV. And I definitely recommend Everyone checking out Cardiener's episode 20, where they just really lay out these fundamental principles really well. But in short, when you go from negative pressure to positive pressure ventilation, you actually help the left ventricle pump better. And that's because the aorta is primarily outside of the thorax. And so the positive pressure actually makes the aortic root have higher pressure and the descending aorta have negative pressure relative. So the flow out of the aorta is better. And also it increases the wall stress on the ventricle to help almost like push it so that it ejects a little bit better, but the right ventricle actually gets hurt by positive pressure ventilation. And a big factor of that is because when you have positive pressure ventilation, that actually is transmitted to the pulmonary vasculature. And so now the right ventricle sees more of a increased afterload, which speaks to what Pernod was talking about a little bit earlier. This patient was ventilated during the operation and then postoperatively and definitely could have an additional insult onto the RV in addition to some of the other things that we'll talk about.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Dan and Pranothi. And Dan, I completely agree with you. When I'm studying for echo boards, definitely going to go back and replay the segment from Pranothi to relearn some of these concepts. So at this point, there's a lot of things to consider for this patient. We can summarize them by saying that he had this eventful procedure and after which he had profound hypotension. Now we're thinking it may be due to a protamine reaction leading to acute pulmonary vasoconstriction and ventricular failure. Leading to systemic hypotension with the additional thoughts of the mechanical ventilation also may be playing a role here. And are there other systemic effects from either anesthesia or possible surgical complications going on here? So at this point, the primary team actually ended up getting some additional data. We do have a CT chest abdomen and pelvis that was completed. The CT chest showed no pulmonary embolism. It did show evidence of pulmonary edema and the abdomen pelvis CT was interesting. So given his long standing history of type one diabetes and known peripheral vascular disease, he was noted on CT to have extensive atherosclerotic calcifications throughout the mesenteric vessels. CT also showed gastric pneumatosis, air within the gastroepiploic veins, portal venous gas, and overall concern for gastric ischemia. By this point, while we were getting all this data, I had a chance to dig through the EMR scanned records from as outside physicians, and I pulled up a prior right heart cap summary and as well as a coronary angiogram summary. We know that from about eight months prior to this procedure, His RA pressure was 15, PA 54 over 30, mean pulmonary pressure was 38, and wedge was 28. So his transpulmonary gradient was 10, which is the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure minus the mean PA pressure, and his diastolic pressure gradient was 2, which is the diastolic PA pressure minus the wedge pressure. We know that the transpulmonary gradient, so TPG greater than 12, indicates an out-of-proportion reactive pulmonary hypertension. And otherwise, a DPG less than 7 indicates isolated post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. In fact, a DPG greater than or equal to 7 is a predictor of isolated pH with a high sensitivity and specificity. Overall, his right heart cath numbers in the past were consistent with elevated right and left-sided filling pressures, along with evidence of post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So his coronary angiogram at that time also showed mild, non-obstructive disease in the LED and left circumflex, and diffuse small vessel disease involving the small non-dominant RCA.
2: So this is really helpful because in thinking about the causes of the main buckets of post-op decompensation, is this somebody with pre-existing cardiovascular disease who wasn't able to tolerate the demands of a surgical procedure and anesthesia? Or is this a iatrogenic complication? Or this is a new acute pathology. It sounds like this patient was walking into this procedure with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, both left-sided heart disease and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And something about the procedure changed something it wasn't able to
0: tolerate it. Rick, how long ago was this data from? About eight months prior. Okay, so fairly recent.
3: So basically, just to give a label to it, it sounds like he is a patient who already has WHO class 2 pulmonary hypertension with elevated filling pressures of the left ventricle driving elevated pressures in the left atrium driving, elevated pressures in the pulmonary veins, which put pressure on the post-capillary vessels, leading to a backlog of pulmonary arterial hypertension, all driven from the left ventricle. And now he's getting some sort of procedure that maybe put this patient who is particularly at risk for RV failure into overt RV failure, even though he had walked into the hospital totally fine. Is that what I'm getting
4: from you, Rick?
0: That's exactly correct. And we know that cardamine reaction is actually extremely rare. And given his risk factors for other causes of RV dysfunction, here I wanted to get Basant's thoughts on how best to proceed.
4: Yeah, thanks, Rick. And I think this, as Amit was mentioning earlier, this is what can be challenging as a cardiology consultant when you come into a patient's room who is acutely hypertensive and try to piece together all of this data and information to help the patient and figure out what the best clinical course moving forward is. And I'd argue that this is actually not only challenging, but this is the fun part of cardiology, especially when dealing with acute hemodynamic changes. So as we think about etiology of shock, I completely agree we should broaden the differential here and think about what else can be contributing to this patient's ongoing hypotension. Protamine reaction, we'll keep that on the differential, again, as the temporal relationship with protamine administration, the OR, with the patient's hypotension afterwards Certainly, we should keep that in mind. And if we think about risk factors, this patient was on insulin before, so has been exposed to protamine and has some degree of pulmonary hypertension. The prior data does not really tease out what particular types of pulmonary hypertension may lead to this protamine reaction in terms of a risk factor, but he did have evidence of post-capillary pulmonary hypertension at the very least. The coronary arteriography data is actually quite interesting. So he has non-obstructive disease on the left side, but has a diminutive RCA. And with systemic hypotension, the RV can be quite compromised when you have this diminutive RCA or this right coronary artery. And I view this as a two-hit hypothesis. So whatever the upstream cause of the systemic hypotension is, that can result in lower diastolic pressures in the proximal ascending aorta and coronary perfusion can subsequently be hampered both in the RCA and the left main. Now, if you have one vessel that's particularly diminished in terms of flow at baseline, as in this patient with the RCA, that will lead to higher resistance in the RCA and there will be preferential shunting of blood into the left sided coronary vessels. And therefore the RV can be further affected with any type of hemodynamic compromise that causes hypotension. There's also maybe a reason why, as Pranopti had noted on the echocardiogram, we're seeing more of a preserved left ventricular function because blood flow may not be as compromised. But then this leads us back to okay, then what caused that upstream hypotension to begin with? Perhaps the diminutive RCA played a role, perhaps protonine played a role as well. I think we should think about distributive components in this patient as well. This patient just came out of surgery, had anesthesia, may still have some peripheral alpha blockade from anesthetics, and therefore could be vasoplegic from that standpoint. We see that on the CT scan, there's pneumatosis in the gastric components. That can cause a feedback loop with ongoing inflammation, upregulation of interleukins like IL-6, IL-8 that causes further inflammation and hypotension. I believe the patient was febrile too briefly coming into the you, and especially when we're seeing ischemia in the gut, we worry about translocation and subsequent bacterial infection. And finally, we should think about the actual surgery itself. This patient had a loop graft place that causes an AV shunt. That can cause opid heart failure, which is more of a distributive component, and that can also potentially load the right ventricles. So I think there's a lot to think about in addition to just protamine. Of course, we should keep protamine in the back of our minds, but we should start thinking about these other issues as well. And then looking at the anesthesia flow sheet, Rick, as you did earlier on in this case, is extremely helpful. This does not seem to be a predominant hypovolemic issue. We're not seeing profound bleeding during the case, and it seemed like the patient had received appropriate amount of fluids. We don't see evidence of obstructive shock here. The CTA chest was negative for PE. We're not seeing any other anatomic causes of obstruction. And in addition to protamine and a diminutive RCA, are we seeing things like an arrhythmia that's unstable that we're not seeing that based off the ECG that you described? And that initial troponin, you know, ischemia, we should think about in terms of a primary thrombotic event, but there are no ischemic changes on that EKG. And of course, we should trend out the troponin. The rate of change is going to be more indicative than anything rather than that initial troponin elevation to think if this is a primary thrombotic event. But again, it does not seem as likely. He did have some chest pain periprocedurally, but it does not seem like this is an acute ischemic event from a thrombotic cause.
2: Wow, guys, the depth and breadth of this discussion and teaching is just so top-notch. I feel like you're pulling me out of my allegorical cave. There really is no better way to enjoy this potango gelato. What an amazing Sunday. Yeah.
3: Oh my gosh. I'll add, this is like so beautiful. It's like a massage of my brain to hear Vasant talk. And full disclosure, Vasant and I were a year ahead of each other in residency. And I suffer from the need for social chill. So when I was taking calls solo, I would actually go hang out with him in the office when we were often aligned on calls. And we would just pick each other's brains on cases. And I learned so much from Vasant and his approach. And this has continued over the years. He's just so methodical and so rational. And this was really a treat to hear that. And the only thing that I'll add, which is really not an addition, but just more of an observation, a lot of our cardiogenic shock patients, if we're not able to turn them around in a reasonable manner, they become distributive, i.e. a lot of them have profound ischemia that it ends up translating to gut ischemia. And we know that a large role of the gut is to keep us safe. And it takes a lot of active efforts for the cells to continue to be that barrier between all these vicious bacteria and our beautifully pure bloodstream. And so if a state persists, we will get gut translocation. I'm not saying that is the cause here, but once you get gut translocation and the patient goes from cardiogenic to distributive mix, is very hard to salvage that situation. And Usually it presents with rapidly declining urinary output and need for CVVH or dialysis and the lactate initially clears because the dialysis is initiated, but then continues to rise. And and that is really every cardiologist's nightmare to see a hemodynamic perturbation that could be corrected with cardiac interventions. But then to see when the patient goes distributive, it's very challenging to put the pieces back together seeing this gas on the imaging would be a huge, huge red flag to take what is already a serious situation even more seriously.
4: Dan, thanks for those comments and thanks for the summary on this patient's hemodynamics. Rick, I'm interested to know, what did you do acutely for this patient's management?
0: Using that advice, Vassan, so we offloaded the RV by UFing from CVVHD and reduced the RV preload and maintained RV-supportive treatment with ensuring normal electrolytes, preventing hypercapnia and hypoxic vasoconstriction. We recommended ongoing norepinephrine for increased cyanotropy and to maintain coronary perfusion. The team had additionally started the lead to reduce pulmonary pressures at this point. We recommended against epinephrine because it can worsen pulmonary constriction, and his systolic blood pressure is actually too prohibitive to start dobutamine. And to assist with a distributive shock and increase his SVR, we recommend continuing the ongoing broad-spectrum antibiotics while awaiting culture data. Overall, the way i summarize his physiology at this point is that his LV was working super hard since it was pumping against minimal resistance. However, it really had nothing to pump because his RV was not working well and facing elevated pulmonary pressures. So his clinical course at this point was still complicated by ongoing hypotension and worsening lactic acidosis. We had a discussion with the mechanical and circulatory support team, and he was deemed not to be a candidate at this point for advanced support due to ischemic hepatitis and resultant severe coagulopathy. I really believe by this point, his INR was 6 or 7. He had other features of TIC as well. So the team was really asking for additional recommendations and what else we could do to support this gentleman.
2: So thanks, Rick. That was a great summary of your approach, and really highlights all the considerations that go into supporting a patient in shock. And from the ventricular perspective, even for the left side, we think about preload and afterload. And all these considerations become even more important for that weak RV that is highly dependent on all of these factors, right? I mean, that weak, thin-walled chamber is so affected by afterload. And so, Velitri and other modalities to not only reduce the afterload, but also make sure we're not giving basal constrictors to increase the afterload is important. The RV is particularly dependent on inotropic support, so that's really useful there. And then it's also very dependent on the preload with a very narrow sort of a, almost a preload therapeutic index, right? Like too low a preload for a filling RV, it's not going to be able to fill. And then too high a preload, if it fills too much and then causes interventricular dependence with pushing the septum towards the LV and decreasing the LV preload. So these are all important considerations, but I do have one question at this point. The patient is in shock, right? Decidedly, the patient is hypotensive on pressors with an elevated lactate and end organ injury. The patient is in shock. And we know that there is underlying cardiovascular disease, and you know that there is a suffering RV. How do you determine what type of shock this is to figure out the best next steps in management?
0: Yes, Amit, so this is a challenging case and challenging physiology. And the next steps here would have been to transfer the patient to the CCU for invasive hemodynamic monitoring. But we knew from the data that we already had, clinical exam and objective data, that he had elevated filling pressures. He was volume overloaded on exam. He was warm touch, and there's other evidence of mixed cardiogenic and distributive physiology. So we felt comfortable using this data that we already had, and using a per se bedside imaginary swan and proceeding with management using that data.
2: I love that, Rick, and I think it just goes to show you how the bedside evaluation and taking in the whole clinical picture is so important. Having a swan may have helped, but I remember what Dr. Elon Witstein always says in the CCU is to float your imaginary swan think about what's going on, and then adjust your management. That was just a beautiful example of your bedside evaluation.
0: So this gentleman, he had ongoing hypotension, shock physiology, and the team was asking us for additional recommendations here. We knew that despite antibiotics and trying to increase his SVR and shift him out of this additional distributive shock phase, he additionally had reduction in SVR from his newly placed AV loop graft. So one of the treatment strategies we had not yet considered was intervening on this AV loop graft. Before we go into this intervention, I just want to do a quick summary of the types of HD access points. So there's two major types. The most common are actually AV fistulates, such as from the radial artery to the basilic vein. The second type are PTFE loop grafts, which is what he had placed here. In this instance, a loop graft was chosen because he had severe PAD, and there was a need for rapid maturity of this HD access point fishulas, on the other hand, take on the order of months maturing for us to be able to use them. So he had a 6 millimeter graft that was sewed into the SFA and the saphenofemoral junction. So we have prior data from 2017 where doctors Yogesh Reddy and Barry Barlog and colleagues published in European Heart Journal a paper on long-term cardiovascular changes following creation of fishulas, but certainly we can extrapolate to loop grafts here too, in a patient population of those with ESRD. So in this paper, in Table 2, they show a pre- and post-AV fistula data from a cohort of 137 patients. They note that post fistula placement, twice as many patients had RV dilatation, and four times as many patients, so a total of 40% of the cohort, had RV dysfunction. There was otherwise a mean decrease in MAP by 10 mercury and an increase in AFib by 15% after fistula placement. So all of these results were statistically significant in their analysis. Vasant, I think you had initially consulted on this patient and you had looked into additional high-output heart failure outcomes in patients with fistulas and loop grafts. Would you mind telling us about that data?
4: Yeah, Rick. So this data actually came from the same group, so Dr. Reddy and Dr. Borlaug from the Mayo Clinic. So they published a retrospective study in 2016 in Jack looking at their 15-year experience with patients who had high-output heart failure and looking at overall mortality in these patients. And they categorized these patients into the major subgroups of high output heart failure, and those groups included obesity, liver disease, AV shunts, underlying lung disease, and finally myeloproliferative diseases. So there were 120 patients, and they compared these to 24 controls, and unsurprisingly, mortality was significantly increased in the high output heart failure group with a hazard ratio of 3.4 compared to controls. Interestingly, the highest mortality subtypes were those with AV shunts and with liver disease. And so if we apply this data to our patient, he does have an acquired AV shunt as a result of his surgery. He did not have underlying or longstanding liver disease, but certainly had acquired liver disease with ischemic hepatitis. He also had obesity. And so although obesity was the least risky subtype of high upper heart failure, here's a gentleman that had at least three different types of high upper heart failure. Of course, the major hemodynamic insult was the AV graft. But Certainly, it's interesting to note that despite best efforts, these patients are at high risk of mortality to begin with. So, whatever we can do upfront in a timely manner for these patients can not only be life preserving, but also we need to think outside the box sometimes when it comes to patients who have hypotension. Do they have one of these subtypes of hyperheart failure that we don't commonly think about?
5: Putting all of that into context and knowing that this patient has some pre-existing disease, as Ahmed was mentioning. I'm really curious to know, Rick, what happened next? What did you do?
0: Yeah, Pranthi, so using data from these studies that you guys mentioned, we recommended uh, ligation of this newly placed loop graft, which the vascular surgery team completed at bedside. It was amazing. There was an instant improvement in MAPS post-ligation, and the norepinephrine was rapidly down titrated. It was funny. One of the providers on the team actually found us in the hallway after this and gave us high fives because they were not initially sold on the fact that this would work. Otherwise he was continued on antibiotics, cultures remained negative, and we've ensured that the RV supportive therapies were ongoing as well with normal electrolytes and ventilation strategies as we've previously discussed. He did have a follow-up echocardiogram done and that showed an LVEF of 60 to 65%, uh, grade two diastolic dysfunction, ventricle was mildly dilated with only mild global hypokinesis. Tapsy here was 1.54 and RVSP was 32. So both improved parameters from prior.
2: Jeez, that's absolutely incredible. What a profound response at the bedside of just occluding it with pressure. Really amazing.
4: So Rick, that is a fantastic response that the patient had. And I'll add that in the European guidelines, if patients have underlying structural heart disease and there's a particular EF cutoff as well, if patients require long-term access for dialysis, recommendation actually is just to place an indwelling line and to avoid fistulas and grafts altogether to avoid these hemodynamic complications that we potentially saw in this patient. I don't believe there is a similar recommendation in our American guidelines, but something to think about for future patients.
3: Fasaf great discussion. So quick question. Do we think that this person had high output heart failure? Like, for example, if we did have a swan in him and we were shooting outputs, would we think that his output would be high and still he's hyperperfused? Or would we think that his output would be low because of the extra burden on the RV and then the RV in the face of pre-existing pulmonary hypertension not being able to get blood flow to the LV and so potentially having a low cardiac index? What's your thought on that?
4: Yeah, honestly, it'd be interesting to go back to the echo and look at let's stroke volume index and just see what that calculated out to be. Honestly, and I agree with Rick, when we looked at the patient initially, it's very warm on exam had bounding pulses, to me, it seemed more of a high output state rather than the RV necessarily causing interventricular dependence and causing a low stroke volume from the left ventricle.
5: Well, and I think that one thing that may argue against that is the intervention that happened, his fistula was occluded and he didn't develop worsening pulmonary edema from having that SVR kind of closed off and his filling pressures in his LV actually remained low and his RV improved. I think that speaks slightly against this high output heart failure with high LV pressures. It's a difficult distinction, but I would actually wonder whether it was more kind of an RV problem and low SVR mm-hmm. as opposed to high LV pressures.
4: And also, Dan, one of the things we do in the cath lab, we don't occlude fully, right? We partially occlude, see what the hemodynamic changes are as the test run first to prove our hypothesis if we feel that, hey, we're seeing the actual changes we should see. It's called the Nicolande-Bronman sign, where we want to see these anticipate changes. And then if we see those changes, then we fully occlude and say, okay, we tested it.
3: Yeah, because I think this can go two ways. You have this new graph, which is overloading the RV, and the RV, therefore, is stretched out, so it's really not pumping well against the setting of the preexisting pulmonary hypertension. And then when you ligate that, you basically almost like diuresing the RV, letting it get back on the hemodynamics. But I'm not sure if that's really the case. That's just how I interpreted it initially. And you guys could be totally right. And it's really a high output situation on the LV. It just didn't sound like the LV was totally overwhelmed with the fluid. And
2: pulmonary edema, it didn't seem to be like the main issue here, more hypotension. Wouldn't it be nice if every patient we met and took care of had read the book, right? Wouldn't it be nice if you had a patient with just pure high output heart failure? And we think about that as any cause of decreased SVR, which is the radius of the vessels, the length of the vessels, and viscosity is all relevant. So you have decreased viscosity from anemia can decrease your SVR or any number of the other ideologies that Vasant outlined, like obesity or liver disease, Paget's disease, hyperthyroidism, berry berries. Sure, you can imagine a patient with just pure high-output heart failure, but I think of it as a mismatch because this patient also clearly has underlying structural heart disease Based on their previous right heart cat numbers and how the right heart looks right now. And you can imagine thinking about like hypertension as a load on the heart, right? And so maybe for a normal LV, a systolic of 300 is an afterload mismatch. But for an LV with an EF of 5% and severe MR, uh, a systolic blood pressure of 140 may be too high, you know? And so that's just a afterload mismatch. And I think the same concept conceptually can translate over for the flow. So we can think of as a flow mismatch. So this patient probably has just a flow mismatch where maybe a patient with a normal heart could tolerate the decreased SVR from this AV fistula, whereas this patient who has baseline structural heart disease based on baseline resting right heart cat numbers, but just wasn't able to tolerate this extra load. And so maybe this isn't pure high output heart failure. It's a combination of this patient's particular cardiovascular system not being able to meet the demand. And so this is probably sort of a flow mismatch uh, parallel to what we think of as that flow mismatch is how I would think about it.
4: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think, Dan, that goes to your point. Instead of calling it high output, maybe just using the term flow mismatch. And then I think if you tie together, this additional load on the RV, plus the fact that maybe there was a protamine reaction underlying this, and we know that his is diminutive at baseline doesn't have great reserve there to begin with as well, I think that's the combination we're seeing here. So maybe not high output in the traditional sense, but like Amit's saying, maybe we just use the term flow mismatch instead.
5: You know, it's so interesting how these are all such good points. The AV fistula for me has been a key part of my consult experience because whether it's occlusion of a fistula or else creation of a fistula, it, there's always some kind of diagnostic power. And anyone with clinically significant bradycardia, for example, or inappropriate bradycardia, if they had an ESRD and a fistula, my differential would always include a problem with the fistula. And the reason for that was this random sign that Basson alluded to. It was described in the 1800s actually in gunshot wound victims. And in World Wars one and two, it was used by vascular surgeons to assist with the diagnosis of traumatic baby fistulas. And what it refers to is an immediate and sometimes transient, sometimes longer-term decrease in the heart rate after manual proximal occlusion of that AV fistula. And the mechanism is thought to be similar to the Bezold-Jarisch reflex, which is essentially that the presence of the fistula results in increased cardiac output because of low resistance across the AV shunt and occlusion then leads to an increase in the SVR and arterial impedance and decreased effective cardiac output as blood flow is redirected through higher resistance peripheral vasculature. And compensatorily, this actually paradoxically activates baroreceptors and increases vagal tone. So you get this kind of physiologic bradycardic response. And conversely, if someone is tachycardic and seems that they have either high output heart failure or flow mismatch, my differential used to always include hemodynamic consequences of an AV fistula creation. And it's interesting how there's been data by Dr. Borlaug as Rick and Visant mentioned. There's also predictors of RV failure after AV fistula that have been studied. A few cross-sectional studies, but the predictors they found for impaired Right ventricular function were low LVEF, high intraventricular septum thickness, and high AV fistula blood flow. And the AV fistula blood flow was independently associated with impaired RV function. And one possibility was increased RV preload or this flow mismatch that we've been discussing. Interestingly, there was also lower flow rates in radial AV fistulas compared to brachial AV fistulas. And in general, the authors of these studies advocated for routine pre-AB fistula creation echoes to understand whether there were any kind of predisposing echocardiographic features to suggest structural heart disease problems or pulmonary hypertension that could lead to problems down the line during AB fistula creation.
3: So my reflection on this case, and one thing that I found incredibly inspiring about the case is, one, you collected all this data and made a lot of inferences that were required off of the non-invasive data that we had. We didn't have a right heart cath, but we used a lot of the clinical acumen that we had built up about this patient, getting to know his physiology and applied that. And then finally, we go and ligate this graph that's newly placed. And just I'm thinking from the surgeon's perspective, they're like, "Whoa, whoa, hold up the guy walks into the hospital for this graft, And we put in the graft, and everything goes well until in you know, this post-op course. And now you're telling me to undo the graph that we just did. It really highlights a multidisciplinary team and mutual trust and mutual respect within the fields. And so that was something that I also took away from this particular
0: case. I agree. It was an absolutely incredible experience and a lot that we learned from the case. And I started the case by referencing Plato's work and I'd like to end by looping back to it, no open intended, of course. And it's all too common to only look at a problem from one perspective. And in medicine, it's incredibly important to think outside the cave here in order to find these suitable solutions. And so glad things worked out and all teams were on board with this. And we learned a lot, ranging from the protamine reactions to complex RV hemodynamics. And I hope that our fellow cardiac nerds out there will be able to use our experience to their advantage and really apply this to their own practice and patient care.
5: Yeah, I think
2: this was absolutely a phenomenal case and discussion. It's really a triumph of quick on the spot thinking, integrated bedside clinical assessment, and then taking it back to the patient to essentially trial a maneuver to localize the lesion and figuring out what was going on. I congratulate you all for doing such a great job with this patient, and I know that William Moser would certainly be proud. At this point I'd love to ask each and every one of you, what was it that inspired you to pursue cardiology and what makes your heart flutter about training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital?
0: So I mean, there's a lot of things about Hopkins that make my heart flutter. Definitely a permanent flutter and cardioversion is of no use here. And there's two <laughs> things. <laughs> it's a, that's a strong start, Rick. Strong start. <laughs> and there's two things that really stick out in my mind, the location itself and the program. Baltimore is my home. It's Charm City. It's where I met my wife, where we've trained advanced advance of car- careers. We've welcomed our daughter here. Can't imagine being anywhere else. There's so much character to the city. And certainly the charm comes from the people. The city is affordable. It has a great and truly underappreciated food scene that's ever expanding. And if you do want to be in close proximity for whatever reason to other cities, there's no better choice. It's right by Philly and D.C. and a train right away from New York. The program itself, I really wanted to be at a place where work would not seem like work. People nearing retirement who have had successful careers often advise young graduates to choose a profession where it feels like they're pursuing a hobby or a passion rather than working for the sake of working. And the program here, the Hopkins Cardiology Program, makes that possible for me and undoubtedly for others. Also, I won't be the only one to say if there's one reason, and there's millions of reasons, but if there's one reason to be a fellow at Hopkins, it's Dr. Shulman. Aside from having the usual great qualities of being available, approachable, and flexible, he truly leads by example and he's committed to patient care. And if you ever want to find him, he's probably attending in the CCU. He's the doctor that every patient wishes for. He listens, connects effortlessly, and practices medicine flawlessly. He's the best career mentor and life mentor you could ask for. So definitely a lot of things that
4: make my heart flutter here. And to add on to what Rick said, absolutely, Dr. Schulman has been amazing. I mean, by far, I am very biased, but I think the, the best program director. But for me, in particular, the clinical rigor at Hopkins has just been fantastic, along with its degree of autonomy. So, you know, of course, we get fantastic research exposure to all facets of research, but clinical volume has just been great. We keep our VA ECMO cases in the CCU and we take care of those patients. We take care of advanced heart failure patients with other mechanical support that when we're on a heart failure rotation, we help co-manage in the cardiovascular sick just next door to our CCU. We see the full range of complications from LVADs. We take care and help with our surgery colleagues, patients who just got heart transplants. We see and are involved with advanced EP cases, referring patients to epicardial BT ablations, microS, sub QICDs, et cetera. So within each discipline of cardiology, we not only see great bread and butter cases, but some of those rare, more esoteric cases. And along with clinical rigor, the clinical rigor is only as good as the people here. So the fact that you can pick up the phone, You can text or call any attending, some of the senior attendings at Hopkins, to run a patient by and get almost an immediate response. That's just been fantastic. Great clinical exposure, great work environment, and we're truly seen as colleagues with the attendings. It's been fantastic.
5: I would like to birth the fact that this program is so supportive and very amazed at how wonderful Program Director Dr. Schulman is. He's really a gem within this program. Beyond that, the collegiality and support among all of the fellows is really wonderful. I think that in addition to the emphasis on clinical excellence and patient care, there is also this thought to advance the future of science and patient care through innovation. For instance, I was really interested in valve disease and multivalve disease from a consult that I did as a first-year And I was able to use that in order to follow my career path and also integrate that with my research interests. And I think that's a common theme at Hopkins. There's so many opportunities within the research field for integrating your clinical interests as well as pursuing connections and collaborations with the engineering school, with the school of public health. And there's a lot of multidisciplinary work that's happening here. So it's a wonderful program from the perspective of research, clinical care, and in general, just collegiality and support.
3: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Ditto, ditto, ditto to what you guys said. And I'll add a little bit from my perspective. Dr. Navin Kapoor from Tufts had come and given a Grand Rounds talk last year, and he had been a Hopkins Cardiology Fellow. And what he said really resonated with me. He said that the Hopkins Fellowship is very much like a Montessori kindergarten class. There is a lot of blocks to play with, but there's no regimented way to play with the blocks. And each fellow has the freedom to play with the blocks in whatever way they want. And my particular path with me going to Dr. Shulman, first with, hey, Dr. Shulman, I just discovered Twitter. I really want to start making Twitter videos and him saying, I don't really know what Twitter is, but go for it. And him learning Twitter so he could appreciate what I was doing. And then a couple months later, walking in and said, Dr. Shulman, I have this friend Amit, and I want to start a podcast. And he's like, I'm not really sure what a podcast is, but let me learn a little bit about it and go for it. Really excited for you. And just that support that he had that really allowed me to develop as a fellow in the way that I needed to develop as a fellow was so incredible. And him as a clinician, as a medical educator, he has been such a role model for me. And Again, one of the things that I love about Hopkins and one of the things that has really allowed me to develop as a cardiology fellow, I couldn't be more grateful to him and the program for really
2: allowing me to grow and develop as I needed to be. And Friends, I'll add that Hopkins holds a very special place in my heart and there's so many things to love about the program. And like what all of you said, the chief among them is Dr. Steve Shultman, who is a terrific program director and just such a phenomenal educator, the enthusiasm he brings to the CCU I have to say, I know people who've decided to go into cardiology after rounding with him, and he certainly had a huge impact in my own relationship with cardiology and the trajectory I ended up taking. So I'm grateful for that. And because of all these reasons, I came into this recording with very high expectations because I know Hopkins. And my friends, you've surpassed that manifold. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Sundays, taking us to Patango for gelato and sharing this incredible case, uh, fascinating discussion and teaching us today.
0: Welcome to the Nerds family. Thank you, Amit. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan and
5: Amit. Thanks so much, Dan and Amit, and thanks to Rick and Visant for a really wonderful case.
0: And now, our ECPR segment by Dr. Monica Mukherjee, one of our amazing echo attendings and an expert in the non-invasive assessment of the RV.
6: Hi there, cardio nerds. My name is Monica Mukherjee, and I'm an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Cardiology and the director of the Johns Hopkins Bayview echo Lab, as well as the director for echocardiographic research. I am really excited at the opportunity to render my opinion on the utility of echocardiographic imaging in shock states as well as a non-invasive evaluation of pulmonary hypertension, although I have to say it will be very difficult to add more to Dr. Hiramath's excellent discussion thus far. 2D echo remains the only imaging modality that allows for dynamic real-time imaging of the heart, and it is an invaluable clinical tool to use at bedside in critically ill patients. Now, while the patient in this case had pre-existing pulmonary hypertension with a confirmatory diagnosis by invasive right heart catheterization, in those where the diagnosis of PH is unknown but suspected, 2D echo can play an important role. There are several different approaches to looking at echocardiograms in these patients, and one method is the one that Dr. Hiramath had mentioned, preload, afterload, and contractility. I tend to follow a somewhat different approach based off of the 2016 American Society of Echocardiography Guidelines on Chamber Quantification. So step one is a morphologic assessment. You can take linear measurements of the RV from an apical four-chamber view. You can take measurements of the right ventricular outflow tract, which is useful in congenital cases or in cases of ARVC from the peristernal long and short axis views at the level of the aortic valve. The right atrial area is also taken from the apical four, and similar to left atrial volumes, right atrial volumes are not sensitive markers to acute changes in filling pressures, but are a better reflection of chronic changes to RV filling pressures. And then lastly, you can look at the RV wall thickness either from the apical four chamber, the peristernal long, or the subcostal, and you will see evidence of right ventricular hypertrophy in chronic RV pressure overload states. You can then look at the eccentricity index based off of the intraventricular septal morphology. So from the parasternal short axis view, the RV pressure overload distorts the normal contour, which is best seen along the short axis geometry of the left ventricle. And this results in flattening of the interventricular septum and what's known as a D-shaped short axis LV cavity. This will occur in both systole and diastole when pressure and volume are elevated in the right ventricle and in diastole only during volume overload states. Step two in my assessment is a functional assessment. So you can look at fractional area change, which is a volumetric measure of RV systolic function based on end diastolic versus end systolic areas or volumes with a lower reference limit of 35%. And the fractional area change correlates very well with cardiac MRI. Tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion, or TAPSI, is acquired by placing an M-mode cursor through the lateral tricuspid annulus, and measuring the amount of longitudinal motion of the tricuspid annulus at peak systole, such that the greater the descent of the base in systole, the better the RV systolic function. Another longitudinal measure of RV contractility is tissue Doppler S' prime velocity, and this is acquired by placing the tissue Doppler cursor sample along the lateral tricuspid annulus and again assessing peak systolic velocities, and this is a measure of longitudinal motion. Now the pitfall of tissue Doppler is similar to any Doppler-based measure. It can underestimate annular velocities if the Doppler interrogation is not exactly parallel to the plane of motion. Now, it's important to remember that the RV has a thin wall and it's comprised of circumferential myofibers in the subepicardium and longitudinal fibers in the endocardium. The major vector of contraction of the RV is along a longitudinal axis. However, in any setting where there's mechanical adaptation of the right ventricle, longitudinal measures may actually overestimate the integrity of RV contractility. The initial response to increases in RV afterload is to increase contractility by means of sarcomerogenesis. However, over time, with sustained increases in RV afterload, the increases in contractility are not sufficient to maintain cardiac output, and there will be sphericalization of the right ventricular chamber. As the RV weakens, there is insufficient longitudinal contractile forces to counter LV forces, and the RV will become tethered leftwards in a phenomenon that's known as apical traction. In this case as well, the RV apex was pulled leftwards due to a hypercontractile preserved LVEF, and therefore, all of the longitudinal markers of RV contractility, such as TAPSI and tissue Doppler S', we're no longer an accurate assessment. And in these cases, fractional area change should be used. So step three in RV assessment, don't worry, it's only a three-step process, involves the non-invasive estimation of RV hemodynamics. I like to use echo at bedside in these cases as a non-invasive swan. As Dr. Hiramath mentioned, right atrial pressure can be estimated by IVC diameter from the subcostal view at N expiration and whether or not there is presence of inspiratory collapse. However, as she also mentioned it's not an accurate reflection in ventilated patients with high PEEP. Right ventricular systolic pressures can be estimated using the modified Bernoulli equation where the peak TR velocity is squared and multiplied by 4 and then added to the right atrial pressure. Mean PA pressures, on the other hand, can be estimated using the PA acceleration time across the RVOT, and the equation there is 80 minus half of the PA acceleration time. Lastly, you can also estimate pulmonary vascular resistance by taking the peak tricuspid velocity dividing by the velocity-time integral across the right ventricular outflow tract, multiplied by 10, and added to 0.16. This is known as the Abbas formula. Lastly, it is important to estimate LVEDP using the Quinonez equation which takes the ratio of early diastolic filling velocities from the mitral inflow over the E prime velocity from the medial or lateral mitral valve annulus. If there is an elevation in RBSP alone in someone that also has an enlarged PA and a relatively quiet interstitium on high resolution CT, you would think of group one pulmonary arterial hypertension. If there is concomitant elevation in E over E prime, again, a non-invasive surrogate of left ventricular and diastolic pressure, and you also see valvular heart disease, or you see dilatation of the LA cavity, you would really think more of group 2 postcapillary pH, which is the overwhelming majority of prevalent pulmonary hypertension, representing nearly 79% of all cases. If there is evidence of interstitial changes on high-res CT in addition to an elevation in your RVSP, this may guide you more towards group three disease or pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease or chronic hypoxia. Lastly, if you see an elevation in RVSP in someone with an acute or chronic PE, you may consider group four disease or PH due to pulmonary embolism. Now it is important to remember that pulmonary embolisms are associated with variable degrees of pulmonary arterial obstruction and typically result in chamber dilatation and akinesia of the mid-RV free wall with a normal or hyperdynamic contractility of the RV apex in a phenomenon known as McConnell sign. It is also important to note that a very high RVSP can only be generated in the setting of chronic pulmonary hypertension. So in acute PE, you will not see an RVSP of greater than 60. And less than 60 generally suggests an acute problem. An additional finding that we can utilize on echocardiography is known as the 60-60 sign. This represents an echocardiographic finding in acute PE where the RVSP is less than 60 and the pulmonary acceleration time is also less than 60 milliseconds. The pulmonary acceleration time refers to the amount of time it takes for the pulmonic velocity to peak. A distal chronic pulmonary arterial problem would result in a longer acceleration time as the summative compliance of the pulmonary vasculature accepts the RV output more slowly before it peaks. Alternatively, a proximal PE will cause the velocity to peak quickly since there is little vascular compliance. I hope that this whirlwind explanation of echocardiographic assessment of the right ventricle has been helpful. My research here at Hopkins focuses on these methods in the early detection of remodeling of the RV in various systemic disease states. So if any of you are interested in learning more, please do not hesitate to reach out.
5: Thank you, Cardio Nerds. Now for a message from our amazing program director, Dr. Stephen Shulman, who we love and adore.
1: Thank you, Pernod, Rick, Hassan. Dan and Amit, for your kind words. What an amazing case discussion and wonderful management to pull this patient through his shock. I have to say, I am so honored to work with an incredible group of colleagues, our fellows, who every day are learning and managing a diverse patient population and wide variety of cardiovascular illnesses as this patient is such a good example of. Who every day are collaborating to bring cardiovascular disease management in all its complexities to an art form, as this patient discussion was evidence of. Who every day are pushing innovation and research to the max to ultimately help our patients. And who every day come to work with a smile Looking forward to another day of great learning opportunities and mentorship. Being fellowship director is the greatest privilege of my career. As I talk to every applicant, I am reminded again that you are all incredibly talented clinicians, educators, and researchers with fantastic potential who I am so confident will thrive at Hopkins. So enjoy this virtual interview season, and hopefully you will find our fellowship as stimulating, exciting, and joyous as I do. Wow, what an
3: amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Reza for their incredible support and collaboration, and a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform colin blumenthal tommy das Eunice dugan rick ferraro evelyn song and bibin Virgise, internal medicine senior residents at the johns hopkins hospital as well as the team med head mentor and university of maryland cardiology fellow karen desai if you love the show as much as we do be sure to spread the word read and review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider becoming a patron of the show on patreon all right that's a wrap time to make like an s do and split
2: that was a beautiful parallel. In the beginning of your description, I was getting a little bit uncomfortable because I thought you were describing your fellowship experience, but you brought it back into this beautiful narrative about the multidisciplinary approach. So that worked out really well. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: it could have been, been something <laughs> going
0: into the research here. <laughs>